0: This is just a quick message to let you know that elucidations now has a blog check it out at lucian that's l-u-c-i-a-n lucian.uchicago.edu slash blogs slash elucidations check it out let us know what you think Welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Jamie Edwards. With us today is Peter Kale, University Lecturer in the History of Modern Philosophy at St. Peter's College, Oxford University. And he's here to discuss the legacy of David Hume. Peter Kale, welcome.
1: Thank you, and thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So I guess we could just begin by saying something about who David Hume was. When and where did he live?
1: Okay, he was born almost 300 years ago, on the 26th of April, 1711, into quite a respected family in Edinburgh. His name actually is properly spelt H-O-M-E, but the English couldn't deal with it. So he changed it to H-U-M-E, and that's what we have. Um, He went up to Edinburgh when he was quite young, Edinburgh University, to study law but found it rather dull. He was secretly devouring the classics and uh, other works of philosophy. But he was so ardent in his studies that he had a breakdown, and there's a letter to a physician discovering the disease of the learned that he had. One of the cures he prescribed to himself was to ride 10 miles every day and drink a, a quart of wine, which seems to be a very good fuel, uh, cure for that kind of thing. Immensely precocious, after this disease of the learned, he tried working in Bristol, but that didn't work out, so he just went to France on a small sum of money where he wrote Treatise of Human Nature," this vast three-volume masterpiece that he published anonymously. The first two volumes came out in 1739, and the third volume came out in 1740. It wasn't very well received. He famously said it fell dead from the press and didn't reach the distinction of exciting a murmur amongst the zealots, which is a slight over-exaggeration. But nevertheless, it wasn't a top ten bestseller, put it like that. So he returned to his home at Edinburgh slightly chastened and then started writing short essays and published the first volume of essays, Moral and Political, in the 40s, and then a second volume, and that actually was quite successful, so successful that he was emboldened to apply for the chair in pneumatical philosophy, as it was called then in Edinburgh in 1744, but his allegedly unread treatise they already knew it was him, and the contents were thought to be too incendiary. The people who actually denied him were not the orthodox church in scotland so much as the liberal end of philosophy who found his own skeptical views or as they took them to be to be too corrosive so he was effectively barred from the chair so after that he traveled around europe as an attache to a, a military ambassador and went to turin and then returned to edinburgh at this about the same time he'd recast the first book of the treaties in what was then called the Philosophical Essays Concerning Human Understanding, but now better known as the Inquiry Concerning Human Understanding. That was published in 1748, and the moral part of the treatise was recast as the Inquiry Concerning Principles of Morals, which was recast in 51. He then got a job at the Advocates Library for 10 years, which is a small sum of money, but it allowed Hume to write, and he wrote what was the thing for which he was most famous during his lifetime, which is his six-volume, History of England, which was a massive bestseller, and allowed Hume to um, live independently. He was one of the first people, actually, to make a living from a literary career. His tenure at the Advocates Library was cut short because he was fired for ordering some improper books, which turned out to be three volumes of French erotica, which is not the average thing that a philosopher gets fired for, one thinks. After that, he returned briefly to his role as an ambassador and went to Paris and was feted by the nobles in Paris at the time. Walpole wrote back, amazed at how all these young women were taken in by this huge fat man with this unintelligible accent. He made friends at the time with Rousseau, who was a persona non grata in most of continental Europe, and Hume very nicely took him under his wing and took him back to Britain and tried to arrange a pension for him. But Rousseau suddenly went rather strange and became very paranoid about Hume, and the two fell out. During that time, he'd also been working on two important pieces in philosophy of religion, the natural history of religion and the dialogues concerning natural history. The dialogues he was advised to publish posthumously, and they were they were published after his death under the under the watchful eye of Adam Smith. He contracted an illness in 75, and he knew he was going to die. Various people were very intrigued how the great infidel, as his reputation has, was going to die. And Boswell went up hoping to see Hume terrified by the unknown and was rather disturbed to find this rather cheery man. Who discussed his only worry being that he, he didn't live longer to see the end of superstition? And then he died in August 76 and was buried in a mausoleum that he designed. And Adam Smith uh, said of the design, it's the only time that Mr. Hume showed any bad taste.
2: So, Peter, Hume is famous, infamous perhaps, for a number of his philosophical positions. Mm-hmm. Chief among these, perhaps, is his thoughts on induction. Inductive reasoning, of course, is reasoning from things that we've observed to things that we haven't have yet to observe. So, every polar bear I've ever seen in my life is white. I presume that the next polar bear I see will be white. This sort of reasoning is crucial to our everyday going about in the world. It's the basis of most scientific reasoning. What were Hume's thoughts on
1: induction? Well, there's two things one must always distinguish, uh, which is what in the end is the particular philosopher's own position, and secondly, how the text affords an interpretation that may not be his own. Now, what's interesting about the case of induction is that Hume's influence in this area has been a view that he is a skeptic about induction, and I'll say what that means presently, but actually the vast majority of Hume scholars, with notable dissenters, but that's true all the time in philosophy, think that he wasn't a sceptic about induction. I'll explain why later, but the sceptical position is thought to be something like this. We take what we've observed to occur in the past to provide a good reason for the beliefs about the future. So we take that uh, those observations somehow justify our beliefs about what's gonna happen next. Now, there are thoughts in Hume that says that we have absolutely no reason to think that how things have occurred in the past gives us any reason to think that they will occur in the future. One way to think about it is this. Hume thinks that there's a presumption in place when we reason from the past to the future, namely what philosophers now call the uniformity principle, namely that the course of nature will remain uniform. And Hume then asked this question, what reason do we have to think that the course of nature will remain uniform? Well, it's not a truth that one can simply determine by examining the meanings of one's terms or one can tell without observation. The only other way we could do it is to say, look, the future has resembled the past in the past, right? So, look, uh, the day before was like the day after. So futures have resembled the past in the past. But Hume points out that this is actually begging the question, right? My question was, how do you know, in order for you to use that as a good reason for thinking that the future will continue as it has in the past, you need to be able to presume that the future will resemble the past. The fact that the past has resembled the future in the past doesn't give you a reason to think that it will continue to do so
0: so maybe just to give a banal example of the future resembling the past every day that i've ever been alive the sun has risen in the morning therefore i feel like i'm probably entitled to conclude that it's going to do the same thing tomorrow that's right but the worry here is you know how do we know that there's no guarantee
1: that the sun is going to rise tomorrow that's right and we think well but it's a good reason but the Hume says well it's only a good reason if we're entitled to the assumption that the future in general will resemble the past, but we have no grounds for thinking that. So any of those little arguments, just ordinary arguments like the one you've given, we think we've got a good reason for thinking that well, it's happened in the past, therefore it'll happen in the future. But actually, we would only have a good reason if we are entitled to the belief that the future will resemble the past, but we've got no reason for that.
0: So this is what we're calling skepticism about induction. That's right, this, yeah. uh, this position, and this is the position that's commonly attributed to Hume. That's right. Uh, but you wanted to claim that Hume's actual position was somewhat different. What do you think Hume was actually arguing about
1: induction? The point turns in on the following. Hume wants to know whether what causes us to infer make the psychological transition from, oh, I've observed A's being followed by B's in the past, he is an A, therefore will be a B, whether that psychological transition is caused by a good reason in favor of it. Now, he argues that that inference cannot be so-caused because there isn't a good reason in favor of it for the reasons we've just discussed. What doesn't follow from that is the idea that Hume thinks that it's unreasonable to make those inferences. Instead he's saying, look, our inferential mechanisms are just like any other mechanism in the world, they're causal. What causes those inferences is not a grasp of a good reason in favour, but what makes them good inferences is that they latch on to regularities in the world, uh, that our minds are somehow geared in to following regularities in the world just as a natural process.
0: So, there's a difference between saying that we have a good reason to believe, for example, that the sun will rise tomorrow, and saying that the reason we believe the sun will rise tomorrow is because there's a good reason for it.
1: That's right, yeah, yeah. He famously says, although it's not as famous as it should be, that reason should be considered as a kind of cause of which truth is the natural effect. So, he's saying, look, when our minds infer in a certain way, they tend to produce true beliefs. Commentators now say, well, that's why Hume is saying, look, we can reason probabilistically, or inductively, because reasoning that way produces true belief. The mistake is to think that what causes us to reason in that way is because we have a good argument in favor of doing it. So otherwise, there would be an interesting problem deep in the heart of Hume's philosophy. Hume's book is entitled A Treatise of Human Nature, and there he wants to apply what he calls the experimental method to human beings. Now, the experimental method at the time, the sense in which he's using this, is the Newtonian one. Namely, you generalize from past experience and draw from that several conclusions. Now, if the book that is applying the experimental method of reasoning to human subjects, in the middle suddenly says, and actually inferring from past experience provides no reason to believe anything whatsoever, then Hume as it were is giving us a reason not to believe his treatise now some people have a long time said well Hume is ironic or inconsistent but actually if you look at it closely where he's talking about does reason determine us to make the transition from how things are in the past to how things are in the future, the word determined here means makes our minds move in that way not is it a good or a bad thing to do? His conclusion is it is a good thing to do, it's just it's not caused by this special faculty of reason that grasps a good reason in favor of doing it. Instead, we infer the way that dogs and cats draw inferences from their experience, because the mechanisms of their mind are natural mechanisms that are geared in to the natural regularities in the world. Now, there's a a residual scepticism in that, in as much as Hume recognises that human beings are, what he says, in a whimsical condition. They can't defend their reason by reason. But that's very different from a conclusion that's entirely negative. It's a conclusion about the kinds of creatures we are and how we reason, rather than simply a negative, sceptical claim about all that we do is completely unjustifiable.
2: So another problem that Hume raises, related to reason, is his belief, desire, model of motivation. Mm -hmm. There's a famous tradition of people who, when we inquire why we did something, we look to the reasons we had for doing it. And it seems that we're capable of acting just in light of those reasons. Hume is alleged to have introduced a problem to this. He believes that reason alone is insufficient to motivate action, mm-hmm. and what is also required is something like a desire. Mm-hmm. And it's this combination together that explains why we act. Yep. Can you say something about this
1: issue? Well, again, it must be stressed that the texts do afford the kind of traditional reading. right? That it's not that this is a groundless mistake. And independently, it's been hugely influential and important. But scholars like to say, well, actually, it's not quite like that. It depends what you mean by reason. Now, the standard view is this. Look, beliefs just tell you how the world is. They don't tell you anything about what's evaluatively important. Having a reason to act is not merely having information about the world, but something that suggests and justifies a particular course of action. But a belief alone on the standard view you won't do that. What you need is A, something to push you, and that's what desires do, and B, something to make the action reasonable. So on the standard view is, well, look, beliefs won't do it, but you say, well, he had a desire that pushed him. And why it was intelligible for him to do that is because it was something he wanted to do and the beliefs provided the information for him attaining those goals. Now, the discussion is a discussion about the relation between reason and passion. But now, reason in Hume is not the same thing as belief. Reason, as Hume is reacting to, is a faculty which he reduces the faculty, he doesn't leave it standing, but it's basically an activity of comparing things. And Hume says, look, an activity of comparing doesn't do anything if the things compared are matters that are simply indifferent, uh, to which you are indifferent. What is needed is that the objects that you compare matter to you. And where Hume thinks that we get the grounds of things making a difference to us, mattering to us or not, is their relation they have to pleasure and pain. Now, right in the, in the section that people think he's talking about belief and desire, Hume is talking about the only things that motivate are beliefs about pleasure. Now, reason alone, just the faculty that compares things, doesn't give you any motivation. What you compare is something that stands in relation to pleasure and pain to you. But that doesn't mean, therefore, that beliefs about pleasure don't motivate by themselves. And in fact, Hume, in a section in the treatise called The Influence of Belief, talks about ideas of pleasure and pain having the power to actuate the will. It's only because people have thought that Hume is talking about beliefs and think that he's saying that beliefs alone don't motivate, that we get to the belief-desire model. But actually what Hume is saying is that just reasoning doesn't itself provide a reason for action if the things about which you're reasoning are indifferent to you. Now why is that important? Well as one must always understand one's philosophers with their targets. Now for many philosophers at the time the central respect in which human beings resemble God is in their reason. And the way to be virtuous is to transcend all this horrible embodied stuff like pleasure and pain and passion, which is the result of the fall, and close all that down and contemplate the immutable relations in God. And that's the way in which one becomes virtuous. Now, Samuel Clark held something like this. Nicola Malbranch held something like this. The point about Hume talking about reason and passion is because he thinks that morality is something that moves us but if all morality was simply a matter of comparing things there must be something more to the objects compared themselves to move you. But they just talk about mysterious relations like the relation of ought or the relation of better and Hume thinks well actually there are only only some fairly ordinary relations that we know. There's spatial relations, there's degrees in quality, there's proportions in quantity and number. And when we compare that, well, that's a matter of indifference. It must be actually the way things were related to us with regard to pleasure and pain that get us moving. So again, the misreading is itself very interesting and extremely valuable. I wouldn't deny that whatsoever. But if what historians of philosophy often try to do is try and think, well, look, what problem and what sort of Issues is Hume actually trying to address at the period and quite often uh, With that perspective what you thought he was saying turns out to be not quite what he's really saying
2: Being motivated by pleasure and the avoidance of pain seems very intuitive to some extent What does Hume say of cases where we are motivated to do things where the pleasure or the avoidance of pain is not so obvious from burdensome chores to the person who gives up their life to aid somebody in need?
1: Well, he he has a complex motivational psychology where he recognizes a whole range of natural dispositions to motivate. So one of the stalking horses in the background of the tradition in Hume's, in which Hume works, is an attempt to reduce all motivation to self-interest. And Hume and Hutchison and Shaftesbury in the tradition he works think that that's just empirically false. And attempts to do so are a matter of adding all sorts of epicycles. Now Hume thinks that we have motivations that aren't beliefs, such as a general localized benevolence. We have all sorts of other disposition. So the first point is that when I say that beliefs about pleasure and pain motivate, I'm not saying that Hume is trying to reduce all motivation to that. He thinks there are all sorts of other motivating states that themselves provide a push. It's rather that he does think that beliefs about pleasure and pain do motivate. So the standard view that he thinks that no belief could ever motivate is a false one.
0: Do you think Hume's thoughts on these various topics we've been discussing moral and practical motivation the problem of induction have applications to problems that people are wondering about today in either psychology or ethics
1: well i think if i might say this the older position took hume to be interested in approaching philosophy from the armchair and producing as it were philosophical arguments that are uninformed by empirical theories about the way that the world operates. But now, looking at Hume in context, we see that Hume is actually much more in the spirit of how naturalistic philosophy is done these days. By naturalistic philosophy, I mean philosophy that takes the results of empirical science and applies them and tries to understand human beings in that light. And Hume really is a pioneer here. That spirit is with us. But Because philosophy, for a long time, didn't want to involve itself in naturalism, what became salient to them is the negative thoughts, the arguments Hume uses, and that distorted what they thought Hume was doing, namely just producing critical negative arguments. But now, Hume's entire vocabulary and all the mechanisms he uses are standard mechanisms that in the neurophysiology at the time, which was used to explain animal behavior. If you look at the treatise now, you'll open the book and you'll hear Hume talking about impressions and ideas and the principles of association in very, very few pages. Now, one thought is there, well, Hume is going really fast and he should really define his terms. And I'm afraid to say that some of my colleagues in the history of philosophy do talk that way. But another reason why philosophers maybe seem going fast in what they're writing is simply because they expect their audience to be fully familiar with this kind of vocabulary. Now, Hume exploits it and puts it to its own use. But now, going back to the spirit of your question, is that Hume's taking his claims about what human beings are and how they operate to be informed by the mechanisms that explain or taken to explain animal behavior. He's trying to model a lot of what we do on mechanisms and processes that are thought to apply to the rest of the natural world. Now, we've become very familiar with this thought, and for a lot of philosophy that's, as it were, second nature. But in Hume's time, this was thought to be outrageous. And Hume's discussion about induction, for example, reducing the causes of our inferring, to the kinds of mechanisms that operates with animals was taken, and I think quite rightly, to be a serious threat to the religious conception of human beings at the time. So Hume speaks to us as a naturalist because he, he does embody the kinds of methods in a pioneering and in some sense, crude way. He speaks to us because of that, but the very boldness of doing that kind of thing in the 18th century, is what makes Hume, a 27-year-old Hume, just incredibly brilliant and incredibly courageous. So one of the reasons Hume is seen as a skeptic, and the sense in which he was taken to be a skeptic in 18th century Scotland, was not, as it were, a mere philosophical issue, an issue in epistemology, but as a way that threatens the conception of human beings as being made in the image of God, and distinct from the natural world with respect to that. That Hume thinks that we're just hum mechanisms that are more complicated beasts. And he argues for that by arguing that the conception of reason that they think is operative won't operate. That's the skeptical side. But the naturalistic and positive side is, this is how we do operate. So the particular issues, I guess, in some sense there are thoughts that can be mined from Hume about the relation between emotions and moral evaluation and the kinds of mechanisms that operate in our mind. So the association of ideas is very similar to a way in which some philosophers model cognition in terms of connectionism and the effect of repeated experience. But Hume's genius and general boldness is the first person is one of the first persons who really to push that attitude and in a time when that attitude was far from orthodox and a serious threat.
0: So another important aspect of Hume's legacy is his criticism of religion. Now, how does that tie into the issues that we've just been discussing?
1: Good. Well, I mean, there's in the broad sense, I think the naturalizing project contributes to that, right? If human beings are a lot more like dogs than made in the image of God, then that already contributes to it. Now, of course, there are various responses one can make to that, but, uh, but more particularly, of course, Hume is famous for a number of things that are particularly pertinent to what's called natural religion, religion, namely, that's based on reason. He has a famous discussion of miracles, where he argues that it's never rational to believe the report of a miracle. And A discussion a very subtle and interesting discussion of the traditional arguments for the existence of God in what I mentioned previously uh, earlier the dialogues concerning natural religion which Hume had published posthumously where Hume's name is never attached to any of the interlocutors and there's fun to be had trying to identify which one's Hume now On those two areas, Hume has made a huge impact, and particularly on the arguments either based on miracles or arguments about order of the universe and the requirement for a design and the kind of thing that we now think in terms of so-called intelligent design. And Hume's had a huge influence in that. But there's something else that Hume wrote which is beginning to take on a much more important role. He wrote a pamphlet called The Natural History of Religion, which uh, one of his great critics said, it argues for naturalism, which is a species of atheism. Now, what was significant about this is that Hume investigated religious belief as a natural phenomena. He wanted to know what natural causes might there be for people to start believing in invisible intelligent agency. Now, most workers concentrated on the arguments in favor of the existence of God. But, of course, a lot of religious believers point out that they don't take religion to be based at all on reason. And there's nothing disingenuous about this. It's traditions of religions, long time, discuss that. So they say, look, all this discussion about arguments in favor of God don't touch rationality of religious belief because it's not something that's based on reason at all. Now, what Hume does in the natural history of religion is say, well, okay, let's see if we can explain how we get this belief in a way that doesn't require its truth. And he talks about the way in which, well, we're placed in nature and we're completely ignorant of the causal mechanisms upon which our life depends. Um, we don't know when the rains will come. We don't know how the crops will grow. We don't know how to stop the tiger coming in. So he then hypotheses, well, we're going to be in a really anxious position. Now, we've got a combination of anxiousness and ignorance. And we also, he hypothesized, on independent grounds, we have a disposition to anthropomorphize nature. Lo and behold, if we project onto the world the model of agency that we have, About us doing things. We then get a conception of these unknown causes but more importantly we get some sense that we are no longer impotent in the face of these unknown causes. Because we know how to persuade and manipulate people, we'll know how to persuade and manipulate these unknown causes by what we usually do flatter, offer gifts etc. And then Hume thinks well polytheism becomes the first religion and then we think of Uh, the polytheistic world as modelled on a kind of state, so there's got to be a prince god. So now, how am I going to best manipulate the world? Well, I'll devote all my time, I'll direct all my time to the man in charge. And the conception of the god then becomes magnified to the extent to which it must, as it were, exclude all the others. So out of religious belief, Hume thinks you get monotheism. Now, the brilliant aspect of that is that it provides a way of critiquing religious belief that doesn't rest on questioning arguments in favor of the belief. It says look we can explain all this without thinking with Calvin that we have an innate sense instead we can just see religion as a perfectly natural phenomenon that emerges from people without religious belief. Now, that's something that is at the foc- now at the focus of cutting-edge discussions of philosophy of religion. Daniel Dennett's Breaking the Spell is a prime example of this. And it's interesting, I think, to note that Dennett's book has produced quite vitriolic responses in the way that natural, the natural history of religion did in Hume's time. But again, we see something that's quite brilliant in Hume, a thoroughgoing naturalism about trying to explain human beings in terms of mechanisms that are applicable to the rest of the natural world, and particularly animal cognition, can change the conceptions that human beings have of themselves. And I think if philosophy is a search for self-understanding, then naturalism helps to contribute to that conception of ourselves.
0: Peter Kale, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Thank you for inviting me.
1: Been a pleasure.
0: If you have any questions about this episode, you can post them to our blog at Lucian, that's luci dot slash blogs slash elucidations. On the blog you can get background information on the topics we covered and join in the discussion.